Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. We evolved in circular systems and have hoodwinked ourselves into creating linear systems and living in linear systems, which is inherently limiting. I mean, I think to people who sort of see circular as sort of crazy leftists and are very polarized data, I'm like, you're not maximizing your value. As to your point, Jason, in a circular economy, you wouldn't be destroying 100 to $500 billion worth of value from material. And at Cotopaxi, we've seen that one of the reasons we hit profitability and growth was that our margins were great because our cost of technical fabrics, because we weren't buying or having to produce or manufacture these quite frankly, like carbon intensive technical fabrics to make our backpacks. It was a massive cost savings in addition to energy savings. Hey folks, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Fast fashion stinks. It creates a truly unfathomable amount of wasted materials, water, labor, money, and carbon emissions. So it provides the perfect context for discussing today's prevailing paradigm for eradicating waste, not just in fashion, but in all sectors. The idea is a bold one, that we can transform our economy from an extractive, wasteful, linear system of using and discarding stuff to a circular economy that keeps products, components, and materials in circulation for future use. It's an idea that's gained tremendous attention and enthusiasm across the business community in recent years, though it still remains quite difficult to achieve. For this discussion, we're joined by two people working hard to make the apparel industry circular. Annie Engel, Senior Director of Impact and Sustainability at Cotopaxi, and Peter Whitcomb, President of Tursus Solutions. Annie and Peter are true leaders in this field with clear visions of what a circular future could look like and the hard-earned knowledge of the challenges we face. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and if nothing else, think more about throwing out clothes in the future. Here we go. Annie and Peter, welcome to Invested in Climate. So great to have you both here today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, honored to be here. Thanks, Jason. Where are you both calling in from today? Park City, Utah. And I'm in Denver, Colorado. Fantastic. Both beautiful places. I imagine the weather's starting to change and both great for outdoors wear, which is something that we're going to talk a bit about today. <laughs> exactly. We have so much to talk about. I'm excited to dive in. And let's start by getting grounded in the problem. I think the problem is fast fashion. The amount of apparel we create today, the resulting carbon emissions and the amount of waste that occurs Currently, 100 billion garments are produced each year. Consumers are keeping their clothes for roughly half the amount of time they did 15 years ago, 
And so every second, a truckload size of clothes goes to the landfill. Less than 1% of clothes are recycled. And this is an enormous amount of waste. In monetary terms, over $200 billion worth of clothes are wasted each year. And in climate terms, somewhere between 2 and 8% of global emissions come from fashion. And we're currently on track to see roughly a quarter of our carbon budget taken up by apparel in 2050. And that's our carbon budget assuming a two-degree temperature rise scenario. The problem is clear. We clearly need to transform fashion. And this need provides a perfect opportunity to talk about moving to a circular economy. Annie, I'd love to turn to you to help us understand what the term circular economy means and why it's a helpful framework for thinking about the change we need in fashion. Sure, absolutely. I think uh, we at Cotopaxi really use the work of the mighty Ellen MacArthur Foundation, who's done some pioneer thinking in the circular economy, as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, and especially applied to apparel. Apparel is extremely wasteful, as you mentioned, at every point in its life cycle. And we have a need to reconsider both inputs and outputs, meaning how can we decrease waste while also thinking about the materials we use and select? And how do we decrease the intense of impacts on environment at every life cycle phase? So by keeping things more circular, it means moving from a linear system, which is what we currently have, which is where we mostly use cotton and polyester. Over 75% of garments are cotton polyester mixes, which means half of the fibers are, are petrochemical oil-based fibers and half are typically conventional cotton-based, which is very water-intensive input to have in clothing. And then in tier two in your clothing is actually where we have the most impacts, which is in the dyeing and fabric production phase. And so anything that has to be screen printed, anything that has to be dyed and then woven, that's an extremely water and carbon intensive phase of the clothing life cycle. And then from there, it's cut and sewed. And then from there, it goes to a brand. And then from there, it goes to a user. And the user actually has a very big influence on a garment's overall life cycle in that there's a lot of energy and water waste associated with how and how frequently you wash items. And then, as you mentioned, currently, there's no way to recycle any textile. So the vast majority of it ends up as landfill waste and not even landfill waste in developed countries who are producing this demand um, and this linear model that's really not serving anyone. The vast majority of garments end up in developing countries as waste byproducts where they then off-gas and microplastic pollute and cause all kinds of issues. So in order to move in a direction that's more environmentally and socially sustainable for the long term means keeping the inputs in longer loops. And so at Cotopaxi, we're very focused on how can we, first of all, really think very conscientiously about the kind of products we feel deserve to get made and editing some of the choices that we feel like don't need to get made because someone else is already making it, or we don't feel that that's necessarily going to promote a more experiential lifestyle that we kind of want our customers to be living meaningful lives and hope that we're creating the kind of gear that's going to promote a, a better lifestyle than we, we have in front of us. And so that's one thing we do. But we also, in collaboration, are trying to think about everything from 
how do we use scrap? So our Daldia line, for example, uses scrap material, not just dead stock, but scrap material that would otherwise end up in landfill or incineration. And then we work with really great partners like Tursis and are really kind of leaning into a future whereby we would love 50% of our sales to come from resales and to really own 100% of our waste stream as a company. We feel that producers need to extend their sense of responsibility and that companies are responsible for the waste they produce. So we're trying to keep both textiles, um, fibers, as well as products in longer life cycles. So that's what circularity means for us. Thanks so much, Annie. And it's worth noting that circular economy is a term that applies to many different industries, not just apparel. At IDO, where I work, we've done uh, circular programs related to apparel, electronics, single-use plastics, food. It's a term that's really used across industries. But Annie, to go deeper into the work that you're doing, would love to hear about some of the success stories and some of the programs that you're most excited about. And perhaps it'll provide an opportunity to explain the partnership that you have with Tursus. Sure. I'd say the program that's been the most successful for us is the Daldia program. And I think it really crosses every box of circularity. But one aspect that I really took with me from IDEO is that kind of sense of playfulness. And I think that circularity and apparel in particular invite people to be creative, to be co-creators in the kind of products that they use. And so by using scrap material that comes from other outdoor or other apparel companies and creating packs using those scraps, and it's given us a brand that that kind of has a very um, unique look to it, a look and a feel to it that's made it stand out. And I think there is that sense of joyfulness and optimism And circularity for me is a source of tremendous optimism that's informed in actual good strategy and results. I think there's a lot of reasons to be afraid when we talk about climate, but circularity to me is a place that's ripe for optimism. And so Daldia for me really embodies a success story of circularity in the sense that we are using alternative materials that would otherwise end up in landfill, be part of this sort of linear model of take, make, destroy and instead giving it a whole new lease on life. And hopefully, you know, also putting a smile on everyone's face who sees it. We we kind of have these sort of absurdly bright colors that you kind of look at it and hopefully it just makes a, you know, it turns the corner of your mouth up a little bit. It's that sense of playfulness too, that hopefully has been an inspiration to other companies and that we've actually been able to scale the program. I think there was this sense even five years ago that circularity or upcycle were these kind of capsule projects that you couldn't really ever get them to be at scale. Well, we've saved a million yards of fabric from landfill and we've been doing this for six years. And so, and we've gone from a 43 person company to a 300 person company. Our success is really the success story of circularity in my opinion. And so that's, I think a really great story. I think just to be honest though, because I think every brand I hear in kind of conversations like this, they talk about all the things they're doing. But I would also say there's a lot of pain points that still have yet to be solved. And I think that that's where we look to collaboration. And Peter and his company are definitely solving a lot of pain points. We just can't solve ourselves as a small to medium-sized enterprise. And so I think what we're actually looking for is the resale, return, and recycling of textiles, which really is dependent on customer behavior. It's also we can't do things like industrial wash in our distribution center. How do you price items that have been used before? How do you ensure that the materials are still good quality 
and that that's not just going to be um, a kind of crummy experience for that customer and turn them off of circularity as a concept um, and push them back into newness and linear models. So I think there's a lot of pressure on companies to extend these product life cycles. And we certainly want to do that as a company, but we are still small. We're not H&M. And that's where you have to be collaborative. And I think in general, just being in sustainability, it's really easy to think you're responsible for the big picture outcome instead of being like, you know, I can only really be responsible for for my one square pixel wide part of the planet. And I think brands need to think humbly about what they should take ownership over and then where they should actually reach out and be collaborative, have a sense of curiosity and humility and find the different pieces of the puzzle to go make these things work. And it, just to help make sure that listeners really understand what it is that you're doing with the Del Dia program, as uh, I understand, is Del Dia is a product line. And it's really, for me, the signature for Cotopaxi is when I think of Cotopaxi, I think of the bright colors and colors being blended together in surprising and fun ways. But tell us, is that the essence of it? And what's been the biggest challenge about keeping materials out of landfill to be able to use them for this collection? The greatest success of this story is creating a different dynamic than most brands in the apparel sector have had with suppliers. Typically, there's frankly been a a quite extractive predatory approach between brands and suppliers. It's about extracting as much natural and social capital in the form of, you know, very high intensity materials and cheap labor. And so I think Daldia is really a result of working very collaboratively with a supplier who identified to us that they were sitting on a bunch of scrap material that they were just gonna, they were lighting on fire. That's what they had to do. And so when you actually go to suppliers and instead of telling them what to do around sustainability, say, hey, what sustainability problems and opportunities do you have? And you'll be surprised. A lot of them, in this case, they were like, we're sitting on this material that you could use. Like, why wouldn't you use it? It's cheaper than virgin material. It's so much more sustainable. And we think it could be fun and um, our sewers would love to have a little bit more creatively way as opposed to being told exactly which colors to use or wear, allowing them to choose. So that's what we did. And we weren't sure if it would scale, but that supplier has scaled with us. And as customers in the West have shown more willingness to put dollars behind their ethics, it's actually supported a whole different kind of dynamic across our value chain. And so I think that's really the beauty of Deldia. And I think the challenge going forward is for us, that's the upstream bit of where our materials are coming, how we're making our products and what we have yet to figure out and need help with. And frankly, part of the issue is America is just very bad at this. We don't have coordinated waste management like Germany does, but we have yet to fix this second part of circularity, which is how do we take back our items, take responsibility for them. And so that's what we're still working out with great partners like Jersus. Fantastic. Thanks so much. And just to clarify, the Del Dia collection, 100% repurposed fabrics and all sorts of different products. And uh, it's great to see that they're not just successful commercially, but like you said, they're surprising people and really drawing attention to the issue. Peter, let's turn to you. I'd love to learn more about Tursus. Perhaps just start us off with explaining what your company is doing and the problem that you're solving. Good to be here, Jason. We really think of ourselves as kind of the operational backbone from a service provider perspective of textile circularity. And the core of our offering is waterless cleaning. We started as actually a manufacturer of 
hardware technology that was kind of this large scale waterless cleaning machines that we initially thought, you know, the market was ready to kind of buy and use and that we would sell these basically as equipment. And we did that for a number of years, quite frankly, to not great success. It was, you know, this is back in 2009, 2010 you know, there wasn't as much sort of readiness or adoption kind of on the ESG spectrum as we're seeing now. Um, We thought the Electroluxes, the Whirlpools, et cetera, would be really interested in this technology. And then brands themselves sort of using our technology in-house to power, you know, take back programs, resale programs, et cetera. So in 2018, we kind of pivoted the business model to continue manufacturing the technology, and I'll talk about that in more detail in a moment, but become our own customers So make it for ourselves and build out sort of an operational footprint to work with brands directly. And our first partner kind of in this B2B model is Patagonia. They just launched a new ultra sort of high performance belay parka called the Encapsule Jacket. They use this waterproof treated down that they guaranteed their customers that they would clean kind of for life. They put it through water wash, discovered the down eroded and the sort of efficacy and loft and all that stuff kind of degraded. And so they discovered our technology and asked if we do a test run. We currently at that time had a machine on a U.S. naval base where we were actually testing cleaning of ballistic missile parts of all things. And it worked really well. The down actually came out a higher loft. The jackets were really, really kind of sort of beautiful, better than new in many ways. And that kicked off our relationship with Warnware. And they're like, oh, by the way, you know, we have this sort of used gear program that we call Warnware. Can you start cleaning for us in a larger scale? And, you know, over the last handful of years, we've really become kind of their operational backbone and added a number of additional partners, you know, including kind of the Cotopaxis of the world, where we are doing some permutation of cleaning, repairs, what we call single skew logistics, which includes pick, pack, and ship to the end customer, but then kind of end of useful life reclamation activities. So downcycling, upcycling, we do you know, we'll, we'll probably become one of the largest raw down recyclers in the country, you know, where we extract down from end of life garments, clean it and resell it to manufacturers. So kind of in, in the spirit of the, the circularity definition that Andy put out there, we're certainly playing in the world where we want to enable brands and retailers to get the most use out of stuff they make. Best thing a consumer can buy from an impact perspective is nothing. The second best thing is something that's used. And we're kind of pointed at a future where whether you're a Cotopaxi or a Patagonia, you know, we work with Eileen Fisher, we work with REI, we work with the North Face. Most brands are kind of earnestly in the space. We're starting to hear them, you know, it's so good to hear Annie talk about a future where 50% of their sales are secondhand. We think we can play a pretty meaningful role role as a service provider in a new sort of operational realm for a lot of these brands. Thanks, Peter. 
intensive cleaning sounds like it could be really resource intensive. You said that you're doing it in a water-free way. So interested in, in how you're able to do that. But also, what about the energy impact? And so I'm curious about the overall environmental impact of Tersus's process. We have developed a totally closed loop process to clean textiles of all sorts. Um, so I've kind of mentioned the brands we work with. We also clean firefighter gear and PPE. So there's a lot of different applications, but there's sort of a few key areas of what I'd call sort of impact offset. First and foremost is water. The primary input to our process is CO2. And we buy gaseous CO2 from gas providers who are kind of harvesting it from ethanol production. So this is beverage grade CO2 that you'll find in kind of soda or beer, but it's effectively an unlimited resource. You're actually reading some headlines about how as ethanol production is going down, it's becoming a bit more scarce, but it's a waste gas and it is kind of our primary input. We use that in kind of the process by piping it into our machines, pressurizing the machines at pressure, CO2 turns to liquid, and we run two bath cycles, very much like you would a front-loading washer at home. The pressure is up to eight, 900 PSI. You know, your bike tire, you run at 100 PSI, so incredibly high pressure. You know, the viscosity of the liquid CO2 is really high, so it actually moves through the, the monomer of the textile and removes dirt, body oils, you know, any, any sort of biohazard issues. And, you know, the garments go in dry and they come out dry in about 40 minutes. And so from an energy usage perspective, we're using, depending on what's in a load, anywhere from, you know, one half to one tenth the energy of running a conventional washing machine and dryer at home at a much grander scale. And so we kind of convert that kilowatt hours of energy saved to, to carbon offset. We're tracking towards cleaning a million garments this year, which would equate to, you know, well over 5 million gallons of water saved. Um, you know, I don't have off the top of my head, but, you know, a massive amount of energy savings. From an impact perspective and a efficacy perspective, there's really no better way to clean textiles. We've worked with Chanel, we've worked with Gucci. So it's, it's really why a lot of brands have reached out to us. They say, hey, if I'm going to resell a used garment, I want to clean this thing. I don't want it to smell. I don't want it to look gnarly. You know, but if we're going to clean 400,000 units in a year, we don't want to use a bunch of water. And we're, you know, Andy and I are in the Intermountain West where the Colorado River, the watershed's drying up. I think water is actually going to become one of the most pressing environmental challenges, like near term, that we face in our generation, quite frankly. And so, you know, as you think about us scaling, and circularity growing in the textile space, water usage is a big variable. So all positive kind of across the board there. Really impressive. I want to talk now about consumers because of course, resale is only possible if people actually want to buy secondhand goods. 
And I'll be honest, I was really surprised to see some of the research and to see how quickly interest in secondhand goods uh, has been growing. Some estimates show that it's actually been over 20 times the rate of the growth rate of apparel overall for a five-year period. And this is you know, hundreds of millions of billions of dollars. This is now reaching to be a, a really significant part of apparel. Annie, I'm curious about the consumer interest that you've been seeing at Cotopaxi and what you've been learning from it. And uh, as a company that's, that's a leader in the space, how are you trying to help drive that demand and increase awareness and really try to uh, accelerate the adoption of secondhand apparel? First of all, I, I agree with your findings and have read them as well. And I, I find them very uplifting to just see the growth of secondhand markets. I think thrifting and vintage have been in our dialogue for a while, but I think this whole idea of buying used and really just dedicating yourself to secondhand and moving away from just needing newness all the time. I'd say though, there's a lot of conflict that consumers face. And so we experience this as well. There's a lot of generational differences in the consumers we see, but also in the kind of studies we've referenced as a company that we know millennials, for example, very willing to engage in secondhand markets. Gen Z, sometimes, sometimes not. Um, it kind of depends. They sort of seem to oscillate for reasons uh, not yet known between, you know, sheen, kind of the worst fast fashion, and then sort of bouncing back to ethical. But uh, millennials in general seem to steadily be demanding and looking for secondhand purchasing. Where we're still seeing a gap as a brand is understanding your responsibility as a consumer to provide the inventory. You're actually critical to providing the inventory. In order to move away from the need for virgin inputs as a company, we require our customers sending gear back. And we know, for example, that that has to be a really simple process for consumers, that any degree of complexity, it can't really be more complicated than sort of exchanging a library book. You know, you need to be able to go in get your garment in and there needs to be enough of a payback in terms of monetary or ethical value in some way, some sort of a, a plot it that you give them to incentivize that sending back and turning in of those used apparel items. So I think that there's still some gaps that need to be overcome in marketing, but I think that that's where we at Cotopaxi feel that we have a really good role to play, just because we do see higher than average participation in secondhand markets and buyback programs in the outdoor industry. I think uh, Peter obviously mentioned Warnware. I think Patagonia really has been the torchbearer in this. We feel like they're kind of the benchmark. We want to be the bridge, I'd say. We think that we have an ethical audience, but a broader base than say the rest of the outdoor industry, but a slightly more educated customer base than say the wider apparel or fashion sector. So I think that that's the role we want to play. And we certainly are spending a lot of time helping our customers understand the role they play in stewardship, because there's a huge bet that we're taking as a company that our customers are actually going to participate in this. And we know they'll buy used but whether or not they send in their old garments, that's where we still really need to see that consistency. During my time at REI, where I kind of had an opportunity to build out their resale, rental, repair businesses, I would echo kind of a lot of what Annie said, you know, and, and the buyer is there and the buyer is kind of who you think it is. And it's disproportionately millennial you know, and this is REI, I think it's somewhat representative of the outdoor industry, harder to comment on kind of luxury 
where, you know, it was over half the customers were millennial or younger relative to the core customer was, you know, much older, kind of whiter, more male. And they were way more engaged with the brand. And so we'd often find a buyer of used gear would become a seller and it created this flywheel effect where there's a whole new relationship with the brand because that proposition of saying, hey, don't come to our brand to buy something, come to us and we're actually gonna buy something from you. is such a new language for a lot of these brands to speak. And I think they're just starting to unlock this, you know, Code Epoxy is obviously a leader here, but there's a lot of work to be done, you know, and Annie commented on this within brands. I mean, you're seeing the marketplaces, the real reels and the thread ups have really kind of proven the scale here. And now brands have to kind of step in and say, we're committed to this, breaking some of our paradigms of saying, come buy, keep buying from us. Can they really disrupt their business models and, and commit to that? Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Annie. Peter, your company is also, of course, making a big bet on consumer interest in resold products. And so I'm sure you have a perspective on what the future holds. Do you have a sense of how big resale can get and what portion of the market will eventually become secondhand products? Yeah, I mean, I have operated kind of in multiple seats in this world now at REI, then at Trove, and now here. And because I've seen the buyer, I'm pretty convicted that the opportunities there, I would say, having spent years working with brands, I think it's moving a bit slower than we'd all like from a total kind of addressable or I should say potential market size. You know, even the Patagonia's North Faces of the world, it's still a very, very small percent of their overall business. It's not even a percent, right? And so, you know, I think we all aspire to that 50, 50%, even at 10% would be incredible. And I think it's going to be, it's going to take kind of a new generation of leadership to really, and new brand like Code, Code Epoxy, you know, I think really kind of comes to the table with a whole new lens of how they think about running their business, quite frankly even relative to a lot of other brands in the space, it's going to take this wholesale kind of from the CEO down commitment to do that. What we've done really well at Tursus is kind of, you know, historically the model has been break even or margin negative. And at the end of the day, you know, like business nirvana, I think for anybody in the space is, you can kind of keep growing sales and mitigate your impact on the, the environment. And to do that, you still need to be profitable. And, you know, at Tursus, we've found a way to sort of break up, you know, we've become a really good operator and we work with software providers and relative to kind of what I'd call the first chapter of service providers in this world, we've cut out 25, 30% of the cost. So now brands like the North Face who we're working with, can say, hey, we're on a path to really clear profitability in this business and finally start to invest in it in a profound way. Thanks, Peter. Beyond e-commerce, there are several other circular opportunities and, and business models, things like sharing and swapping, subscription, clothing rental models, and of course, designing clothes from the beginning to incorporate materials that are intended to be reused. 
And there's a, a lot of examples to draw inspiration from. Peter, you mentioned ThreadUp, a now publicly traded company. It's an online marketplace for used clothes. It's sold over 125 million pieces. And companies like Mud that makes, rents, and recycles organic cotton jeans. So I'm curious, are either of you thinking about other types of circular business models? We want to do everything that we can do. And we see our role in the marketplace and and wider like capitalism, big C capitalism. We want to be the example to say this stuff works. Like you can absolutely be the first legally incorporated benefit corporation to receive top 500 venture capital funding and still be around six years later and be profitable. Like we just want to get this right. Our appetite for being as creative and as ambitious. And I'd say my license within Cotopaxi is amazing. I don't have red tape. My job is to go innovate around sustainability issues for social or environmental stuff. And I'd say we generally don't try to invent the wheel. We assume the wheel has already been invented. But if we can go pilot the wheel and show and demonstrate to a bigger company, like, yes, you damn well can do it. You can absolutely use scrap and dead stock material. There's no reason we should be making virgin fabrics. We are sitting on enough fabric to clothe our species for the next 150 years. There are goofy statistics around this. Like we, no one should be making any more virgin fabric. And so unless it has some technical feature that's like so whiz bang, you can like, I don't know, walk up Everest or something. But that's not who Cotopaxi is. I, I think that for us, we just want to pilot as many circular initiatives as we feel have a reasonable chance of, of successfully mitigating an issue, not being successfully just business-wise, but like, really, is this going to help? We know in fashion, this end-of-life cycle just hasn't been addressed. We feel like we've done the upcycle, how we source, we've done some really creative stuff that we feel work. The next thing that we, we really want to tackle is this stuff that Peter, Tursus, Trove, everyone's been working on. But I think we can take it to a different level at Cotopaxi and kind of like Peter is saying, making it part of a business model. Like what is a brand actually doing? Like we're, you're not, you're not growing your cotton. Like where is your real value add? And it's, it's only a matter of time between a customer can just go commission something directly from a supplier. Like I don't understand why more suppliers aren't going D to C. Um, and I think there's this elephant in the room in the, the kind of Western brand space of, about like what kind of value you're actually adding. And at Cotopaxi, we see, well, we can be a service provider. If people are looking to facilitate a certain kind of lifestyle that requires certain kinds of gear, that we can go be that provisioner, but also do so in a way that's redistributing wealth in a way that is not happening at a nation state level, that's happening on a more global level as opposed to a sort of bounded way. And so I think our appetite for being wildly creative and joyful about circularity is uh, the sky's the limit for us. We want to we want to try it all. So we'll try it. And if we fail 50 percent of the time, that's OK. That's OK. That's kind of our role. Yeah, I, I mean, I would just from a service provider perspective, we've probably evolved. Our, I talked about the one big pivot we made in our business. I joined a, a year ago in the year I've been here. We've probably done six, seven micro pivots around no one's really figured this out, right? And it's kind of back to that. It's still less than 1%. And we love to work with, you know, we've done a number of pilots with Cotopaxi. We've done rework projects with Cotopaxi. They come to us with a problem that maybe they, you know, they can't solve in-house. And we almost always say yes, if it falls under that banner of textile circularity, you know, and, and 
we're constantly testing and learning. We're really excited about our technology sort of applying to this space because it keeps product, either virgin and raw materials or existing manufactured materials in use. But, you know, the, the bigger point is no one's really figured it out. And I think that's both an exciting thing, um, but it's also a very real challenge. And we've, you know, we haven't gone and raised a ton of money. You know, we've actually cash flowed the business. We've maintained a re- relatively agile kind of position in the market. And it feels like a constant test and learn. Pockets of our business are working and scaling. Others are not much like we're just on the other side of the equation. And, and you know, I, as a very practical example, you know, we clean all of REI's betting for their rental business and their used gear business. We are finding a lot of the sleeping pads, you know, weren't making it through our sort of, you know, inspection tests. So we inflate them, we clean it, we sanitize them. And a lot of them weren't holding air for whatever reason. And we said, hey, you know, let's look at this material. And we started, much like Patagonia does, we've remade, you know, 10,000 sleeping bags into kind of post-consumer new products, totes and bags. And REI can't buy enough of them because they sell them in store. And so, you know, we're just constantly creating, like, creatively looking for avenues to keep product in use. And that's sort of our North Star right now. Thank you both for that. Let's move on. It's been really inspiring over the last 10 years to see the idea and principles of a circular economy really catch on and for companies all over the world to take notes and to start talking about circularity. What do you think has made the circular narrative so resonant and and successful? One thing, and I'll kind of play a little bit of kind of the other side of this. I actually think the narrative has preceded the action in our world a little bit. You know, and I, this is coming from someone who was, you know, the head of circular business models at a large retailer. Um, and I'm still incredibly optimistic, but I think notwithstanding, you know, a handful of very visionary kind of thinkers and brands, I think there's still a lot of work to do on the ground to kind of fulfill the vision that is circular and the momentum, certainly conceptually and academically that's behind it right now. You know, the first moment a brand is, you know, 25% of their sales are circular. I'll say we're kind of there or, you know, we're on our way. So that all to say, I think there's a little more aspiration than kind of reality right now. I think the attractiveness of circularity almost as a philosophy, for me, it comes from nature. We evolved in circular systems and have hoodwinked ourselves into creating linear systems and living in linear systems, which is inherently limiting. I mean, I think to people who sort of see circular as sort of crazy leftists and are very polarized data, I'm like, Ed, it's you're not maximizing your value. As, as to your point, Jason, in a circular economy, you wouldn't be destroying 100 to $500 billion worth of value from materials. And at Cotopaxi, we've seen that. One of the reasons we hit profitability and growth was that our margins were great because our cost of technical fabrics, because we weren't buying or having to produce or manufacture these, quite frankly, like carbon-intensive technical fabrics to make our backpacks, 
it was a massive cost savings in addition to energy savings. So there's a lot of practical reinforcement. I think to Peter's point, though, there's there's definitely more aspiration than ambition. And I'd say that we want to be the ambition, but it is it's hard. And I'd say at Cotopaxi, probably very similar to Tursus, that there's there are typically small to medium sized enterprises like us that are carrying more than our hefty share of the weight. And it is very hard to compete with a Sheen and an H&M. When you put ethical barriers into your behaviors, it does mean that on today's linear capitalist marketplace, there are some disadvantages that you're going to have to deal with. And the amount of trust that we have to put in customer behavior, which we don't really quite see yet, it's hard. It takes some guts to go do that. And I think part of part of the ability to go be ambitious comes from numbers. And so I do think goals is important, but also keeping good company. Like the services that Peter and Trissus provides, there's no way financially we could ever go build those technologies or go patent them or have them in our distribution centers or offer the repairs needed to go resell or do the inventory and pricing optimization that Trove is helping us to do. And our first pilot resell we did with REI. And they were the ones who fronted some of the upfront costs because we were, you know, a five-year-old, six-year-old company. Like we're small, we're limited. We have, we'll ha- we have the ambitions and we see that as a role. We see, we know we're going to fall flat in our face and kind of take it sometimes. And we know that there are companies out there that are, because of their board structure, because of sort of restrictions that are imposed on their model, they're not going to do this until they know it works. But we're still definitely in the testing phase. And I wish that there was more ambition from government. I think that to me, I, I kind of don't expect companies who have been rewarded for linear models to be on the forefront of changing. They don't really have the incentive to go change their model. But governments absolutely should because there's a lot of recoup potential in terms of value savings, social economics. Um, there's Governments should be much more bullish in terms of their procurement and in terms of the investment they're putting in circularity and waste management in, in our country. That I feel pretty strongly about. And that's missing. I, I love that you both naturally went to the reality that's so far the aspiration and the ambition is greater than the action. That was actually going to be my next question, but you, you beat me to it, which is great. But it, it still begs this question, and Annie, you started touching on it, is if we're not moving quickly enough and circularity is still more talk than action, what needs to change? What do we need to do to accelerate implementation of circularity so it's more than just a, a resonant concept, but it's really a business reality? I mean, just coming from the UK, you know, with the, the carbon tax they've passed with a lot of the regulation that have to do with what's being referred to as extended producer responsibility, whereby brands are responsible for all their waste, where, you know, in future, if a Coca Cola bottle washes up on the shore of Wales, they're responsible for that. If that shows up in a turtle, they're responsible for that and are tax liable. That's a pretty powerful thing of accountability. And lo and behold, the amount of movement we're seeing from UK brands and some of the brands who who buy our products and just the kind of accountability that they're seeing around circularity, having anything like that at a global scale would be important. But I also worry that you're getting a very fragmented ESG landscape whereby there are a lot of 
private companies determining outcomes. And it's in a lot of private companies, it's not in their best interest to move to these circular models. I think that people like Peter and myself, we see the benefit, but if you're a sheen, you're definitely not going to see the benefit. That benefit, there is no benefit to you. Circularity is going to put you out of commission. And so I think that policymakers and regulators and the wider economy needs to be tipping more towards a circular economy. Circular models will thrive in a circular economy, but our ability as one sort of pilot of a circular model cannot necessarily operate to its full extent if it's not in a circular wider macro economy. And so that's the big leap for me. And to be honest, outside of policy, I don't really know how we get there. I just know that we have our role. And again, it kind of gets back to getting very finite in my role as a sustainability person. Like we can make the goal to try to be as aggressive as we can with this. We want to do it right because at Cotopaxi, we want to get it right. We feel like there's a lot of pressure on us. Like if we fail circularity, I feel like a lot of people write it off. If it succeeds, people will invest. And so that's our role. To get to bigger, I don't know. Sometimes you kind of have to stay within your own four walls to make something work and hope that that can be extrapolated outwards. There's a very real kind of human nature variable at play too, where the biggest brands are generally pretty old and, and there's a kind of a staid mentality and kind of, Maybe, you know, no, I don't say this in a derogatory way, but kind of a lack of vision around sort of self-disruption. And it's hard because humans are kind of incentivized to be successful within what they know. But I think from a service provider perspective, our goal as we see it to kind of hit on Annie's point is we need to make this really profitable and make sure this is a no-brainer for the brands we work with. And, and I think 2AT, every brand we work with, sees us as a profit center. And that's, that's you were probably standalone kind of in the market right now, and hopefully that changes. That's kind of personally what I feel like my job is right now. I was like, I really want this to be successful because within the constructs we're operating in, it needs to kind of check all the boxes that are you know, an executive is, is measured against today. And I like within the four walls theory of Annie's, it's like, that's what I can control. And I think, I think it's starting to work. We're seeing, I'm very optimistic from sort of the uh, early adoption perspective. Well, I think it's a perfect transition to what any listener can control and to talk about what consumers should do. So to both of you, really curious, how can we all best contribute to reducing waste and to building a more circular economy? I live and breathe in used product. I'm touching it all day. There's no reason not to buy secondhand. Uh, I mean, and that's kind of the no-duh thing. You know, and it, it kind of gets back to, to just sort of self-examination and the impact you have. You know, it's it's pretty hard to say to the millennial that's like addicted to sheen. But there is, I think, you know, individually an awareness around these things being available and more and more brands kind of participating. And I think that's one is a sort of self-education. Um, you know, I think the other is like for me personally, spending time in nature and, you know, I, I spend all of my free time outside and kind of reconnect with space and earth and natural resources. And that is always a very, very grounding 
exercise for not just how you consume, but how you kind of live within your community and the earth. And I'd encourage anybody who's not getting outside to do that more often. I think to reiterate that, I, I, I think for consumers, first of all, to examine their relationship with consumption. Um, Americans in general throw away 68 pounds of clothing a year, which is an insane statistic. Um, I mean, that's just nuts. It's like, it's like a kid's weight worth of fabric, you know? And so, and, and most Americans, I think by three to five high carbon intensive, completely unnecessary items that they will forget they own in three to six months. So really considering that, and I think whatever your getting off of the hamster wheel of consumption and whether or not even viewing that as a kind of addiction and then what the replacement is. And, and for me too, I ended up in the outdoor industry because I, I grew up in the mountains. And so for me too, I think exposure to nature goes hand in hand with just sort of reinforcing more circular habits. I think the more examples of that that you see is great, but also understanding that your waste has value and that Everything that you buy that feels like there's only a benefit to you comes from something. And so, you know, I, I really appreciate the Das Gupta report, which was commissioned by the UK government, but it's really touching upon this idea of natural capital that literally everything comes from nature. Every item you're looking at, every piece of clothing, you know, every plane you get on has inputs that come from nature. And the more we use of that and the, the, weaker our stewardship is of that, the less there is of it. These regenerative systems become less regenerative and more finite. Um, and so I think understanding that bigger per picture and perspective is important. And I think more practically, buy used, buy less, and then understand that once you're done with something, try to resell it, try to reintroduce it back into this model as a service and continue your sense of stewardship with that item. And understand that you have a responsibility, just not just what you buy and how you buy, but also how you discard and how you recycle. Annie, Peter, thank you both so much for your time today. Really inspiring to hear about the work that both of you are doing and your companies. And really, I think, uh, a, a really provocative conversation about the role that we should all be playing. So thank you. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.